0: Um what are we doing today? Acts chapter fifteen, please. Acts fifteen. This is the passage. I was away for um, I was away for a week and Brother George and Tony, thankfully and gratefully. Um, filled in for me, which I was very thankful for. We did a topical last week just because I needed some Beatitudes. There are some passages that I go to for myself, and I think pastorally it helps us. So we looked at um, last week a topical sermon. We're back to our series. We're trying to plow through the book of Acts, and this is our 59th sermon. And um, we're in Acts 15, 1 through 12. And this is a passage we looked at the last time we were together in this particular series. And if you remember from it, the two things that I was keen to look at in taking two sermons were um, the attack on the gospel of grace and then the defense of the gospel of grace. And so the previous time we looked at the attack, which I'll talk about just briefly in just a bit, and then we'll spend hopefully most of our time on the defense of the gospel, but we'll look at um, 15 through tw- 12. Actually, this is known as the Jerusalem Council passage. So you have Peter speaks, Paul speaks, and then Barnabas, and then James. But there's so much here. I decided to leave James's uh, speech to, 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 to a later sermon, but it's part of the same council. But 15, verse 1. Here God's perfect word. Some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, bringing great joy to all the brothers, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the elders and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to um, bear." but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they uh, also are. All the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what what a loving Father you are. We thank you for the the sending of your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your sacrifice. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would transform us, you would conform us, mortifying our our sin and vivifying, growing our righteousness, conform us into the image of Christ, the ministry of the Word. Lord God, if there are any who have come into this convocation this morning that don't know you savingly, may today be the day that you liberate them and that you join them together in one flock, one family, along with us. Glorify your name in all the earth. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So I mentioned we have the attack on the gospel and we have the defense of the gospel. This is, as I mentioned, this is what's known as the Jerusalem Council passage. It's a church synod, a church convocation, a church meeting. the leaders of the church and they're discussing matters of doctrine and we'll look at the kind of doctrines that they're talking about but it's a church council um we'll talk about some some of the ancillary things that that teaches us but i want to back up and deal with uh first touching a little bit on the attack of the gospel the gospel goes out the gospel of the cross goes out the 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 ministers of christ are busy proclaiming they're being faithful to christ Christ sends them out to all the corners of the earth to go from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel of the cross, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 2. The gospel of the cross, or as one theologian says, the gospel of justification by faith alone. That goes out. And God, the Holy Spirit, has been busy giving, doing that heart surgery, giving people, the elect we know, uh, repentance and faith in Christ. So people are believing the gospel and they're being saved. They're saved. There's a, there are problems associated with the proclamation of the gospel. I'm not saying there's any problem with the gospel, but they coincide, especially with the success of the gospel. And what I'm getting at is this. When Christ, by his Holy Spirit, is busy busy plundering the kingdom of the devil, which is what happens when we we come to know Jesus. We're taken away from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of the devil. We We, like them, we're children of disobedience. And Christ, by his gospel, is plundering the devil's kingdom, of which we were a part, as children of disobedience. And he's saving us, setting the captives free. Charles Wesley, is it Charles? Yeah, Charles has a beautiful... Set the captives free. Well, the devil does not take the plundering of his kingdom sitting down. And so wherever you see the gospel success occur by the spirit of Christ, you will see, generally, the spirit of Antichrist almost coincides with that. So where Christ is having victory, Antichrist raises his ugly head to combat the success of Jesus. So the Puritans would talk about whenever you've had some great victory in Jesus, some mountaintop experience in Jesus, oftentimes when you come to corporate worship, receiving the sacraments, and you feel so close with the Lord Jesus Christ, they would teach to look around. That's the devil's fishing time. Where there's gospel success, the devil will come and attack. And that's exactly what happens. And so what this does teach us by way of pastoral application We can rest in Christ. We have peace with God. Jesus prays for us. We have the Holy Spirit. All of those things are true. But we're not home yet. And we we are not the church at rest yet. The church at rest is when we die or Christ comes back. We are always the church militant. And so we're to live thinking and fighting for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we're never... I'm going to show my eschatological cards... We're never going to arrive at a place of perfect peace, perfect unity, until Jesus comes back. So, Antichrist attacks the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that Antichrist attacks the gospel of Christ in the advance of the gospel, one is by refuting it with false religions, but the way that it usually occurs in a more wickedly effective way is to corrupt the gospel is to be an attacker from within the church. My wife was raised a Hindu. Does the church, is Hinduism an enemy of the gospel of Jesus? Yes, they're an open enemy. Do they do more damage to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, or does the lying preacher, preaching a false gospel, wearing the cloak of a Christian, does he do more damage from inside the church? It's it's the disguised hypocrite. And, and that's what oftentimes happens, is they, they come refuting the gospel by corrupting it. Now, a couple of places here, Paul and Barnabas come back and tell the guys um, what God has been doing among the Gentiles, namely, saving them. And, and the people that hear this, that is to say true believers, they rejoice. What did we read liturgically? Uh, Luke, uh, Luke 2. So with the annunciation of the angels, the angels say something like this. We're, we're coming, giving you good news of great joy for all the people. That you, are, the Christ will be born. And he's here. He's going to be in swaddling cloths. And so when we hear the word good news, it, it's the Greek word is, I'll butcher it, euangelion. And the, the you is the good, and the logos, is the, is the suffix, is, is the words. Good words. The gospel is happy news, great news, news of great joy for what kind of folk? What kind of people say this good news of Christ dying for sins is wonderful news? What kind of people? Sinners. Guilty sinners. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I want what's coming to me. Beloved, I do not want what's coming to me from God. I want what Christ merits from God for me. If we receive justice, we're going to hear, depart sinner. We want mercy. The reason the good news is so good is because we're guilty sinners and God provides in Christ for the guilty sinner. He provides the atoning sacrifice. The forgiveness, the reconciliation, the union, the communion, every other blessing. It's all bound up. No one deserves it. Christ merits it. He freely gives it. It's good news. Now, the attack on the gospel shows us that not all sinners think the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. In the context of our passage, look at, um, look at the passage. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> The, the, this represents one class of sinner for whom the gospel of pure grace, pure gift, the gospel of the cross, is not good news. They actually don't like it very much. Look at what it says. And let, these, these folks are teaching people, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, what's the next part of that phrase say? You cannot be what? Saved. And then later in the chapter, the Pharisee party stands up and says, oh, oh that's true. Not only do they have to be s- circumcised to be saved, they have to do what? They have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Believe in Jesus to be sure. Yes, you should believe in Jesus, but he's not enough, whats what they're saying. Jesus alone is not going to pay for your sins. You, by your works, will have to make up what Jesus lacks. So believe in Jesus, plus. But you have to be circumcised, and you have to keep the law of God in order to be saved. So for these folks, we're going to give them their theological name. They are legalists. Now, sometimes you hear this. I've, be, I've been called a legalist so many times, it loses its like power over me. You go to church, yes, legalist. You read the Bible, legalist. <laughs> you labor to obey the commandments, legalist. Lord, legalism is not the response of the person that says to God, Oh God, you've done everything for me in Christ. You've paid for all of my sins, Jesus. Now I want to, as an expression of my gratitude, love you. And only do the things that you love and refrain from the things that you hate, which is obey the law. That's an expression of gratitude. That's every born-again Christian. Every born-again Christian who reads the Bible wants to live a life to glorify and enjoy God. So legalism is not laboring to, to obey the law of God out of gratitude, and even that's gifted. What legalism is, is when we say something like this, I will keep the law of God, or be circumcised, or what have you, or make up my own laws, so that... I will earn merit for my righteousness before you. Do you see the difference? One is a response to grace. The other is an addition to grace which destroys grace. Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 11, uh, maybe 10, if you add one of your works to God's gift, God's grace, what do you do? You destroy it. But this is what the legalist says. Oh, I'm, I'm... I will believe in Jesus for part of my righteousness. The other part of my righteousness I will earn. It will be not not only what Christ has done, but my right standing before God is also what I do. Now, beloved, I want you to think about that. That's, that's not the true gospel. Does that sound like good news to you? That Jesus pays for part of your sins and you... By your law keeping, you pay for the other part, whatever that other part would be. Does that sound like good news to you? Many years ago, I was helping a brother who was in the church and he had some big sin problems. We're not talking small sin problems, big sin problems. And then he messed around on the internet, which don't mess around on the internet, and he got hooked up with Federal Vision. And then he said, you know what, Pastor? I think I can keep the law of God. In fact, I do keep the law of God. And we were at a pancake house, and I finally had enough of him. I said, you know, I'm coming to this pancake house, and I'm praying for you, and I'm doing all this work, because you can't keep the law of God. And he said, well, you're throwing my sins in my face. I said, I'm not throwing your sins in your face. You're trying to pay for your own sins, and you're turning your back on Jesus. And my question to him was, how much law do you keep? How much do you need to keep? And how, how, how should you keep? Should you keep all Ten? And what happens if you fail in one moment? Is it personal, perpetual, perfect obedience to the law, which is what God requires? And he told me, actually, God grades on the curve. Beloved, I'm going to tell you something. Jesus did not go to the cross and say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God grades on the curve. What does James say? What well, God through the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit through James. If you break one law, you have what? You've broken them all. And and what are the two greatest commandments in the Bible? Love God perfectly, love man perfectly. Raise your hand. Who has loved God perfectly and loved man perfectly? Nobody's hands are up. One untoward thought. We're, We're toast. The Lord Jesus Christ. Does Christ know the hearts of all men? Yes. I'm going to read something to you. And he's going to get, get at what a legalist is versus what a non-legalist is. And the legalist is objecting to the gospel. Here's the legalist. Luke 18. Jesus told this parable to some people, to some people now listen to this, this is the legalist, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Those two things go hand in hand. The person that's a legalist that thinks they earn their salvation, that Jesus doesn't uh, earn it for them, they have a really high view of, of self and they have a really low view of other people. Two men went up to the temple, here's what Jesus says, to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, which is not a prayer. When you pray to yourself, you're praying like you're a little God. And here's his prayer. God I thank you. I am not like other people. (laughs) Unjust swindlers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Get ready for his righteousness. I fast twice a week. Wow, that's impressive. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you this. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus says, this fellow who trusts in his tithing of the dill and the mint and the cumin, all of these things, he's not going to heaven. He's not justified. And I want you to think of that. Legalists don't look like these complete wide-eyed loonies oh no, they probably, they probably have short hair and blue suits and they look all squared away and I read the Bible 20 times a day and I go to church 60 times a day and I do everything just so. Wow, yeah, you're on your way to heaven. Not if you're trusting in those things that get you to heaven. Should you go to church on Sunday? Sure, the Bible says go to church. Should you read the Bible and pray? Sure, the Bible tells you to If you're trusting in those things, that's, that's law, obedience, merit. It's either Jesus merits our salvation or we think we're meriting part. And what the legalist says, it's not all the work of Jesus. It's partly my work. Beloved, I'm going to tell you, that is the church of my youth. No one beats the Roman Catholic Church in that. And all of the cheap forms of that that, that disguise themselves as cheap uh, uh, Protestants, it's just Catholic JV. You, are, you think that you're earning your righteousness before God. When Jesus says, it is tetelestai, finished. Finished. It's not five bucks to the sisters of mercy. It's not flagellating yourself. It's none of this. It's Christ. Christ alone. It is finished. It's either he pays, or if we think we pay, we're preaching a legalistic gospel. And so these are the folks that, they object to it. And I will just tell you this. Who would object? Two, Jesus pays for all of your sins. It's only his blood. Who would object to it? People that don't think they're that bad. People that think they're really good. All false religions, which is all religion other than the the religion of of the Bible, in all forms of false Christianity, which is what we're looking at here, attacking true Christianity, they teach auto-salvation, B.B. Warfield. Auto-salvation, which is self-salvation. I'm going to do it. The five pillars of Islam. You're going to flagellate yourself and walk up on some some stairs on your knees until they're bloody. You're going to wear a hair hair shirt. All of these things. That's self-salvation. Jesus comes along and says, you're not justified. It's either him, all, or none. And the moment we stick ourselves onto it, we lose the real gospel. The pride of man hates the grace of God, the real grace of God. And I'm going to tell you this, no extra charge for this. You're going to hear this from false Christians, because I hear it all the time. False Christians that are really legalists, they leave the gospel of the cross for the gospel of man, law obedience. You're going to hear this. They love to hyphenate words. They make up words. They'll use words like this, gutsy grace. Gutsy grace, which is... You doing. Grace is God giving. Or they'll say something like this. Oh, we believe in grace. Grace works. You see that? This is why they exchange faith in Christ for faithfulness. Belief in a Christ that does all or our obedience to Jesus. It is a different gospel. I know you think, well, is it really that important? They have a church council for it. One group says it's Jesus pays for all of your sins and you receive him by faith alone and that's how you're saved. The other group says no. It's Jesus pays for some and you pay for the other or you you don't go to heaven. Now that's the attack. And so what I want to look at now is the defense of the gospel. As I mentioned, it's a church council which is a church court. It's a gathering of church leaders for the purpose of discussing doctrine or teaching And it teaches us some basic things about the nature of the church. We just had folks joining the church, officially joining. Um, When we come to the church and this church council, it teaches us the corporate nature of Christianity. As Americans, we're American Christians. Uh, Probably everybody here was born in America, except with maybe a few people that I know. Americans, we used to be, it was known as like uh, individualism, bootstraps, my dad was a devotee of Vince Lombardi, so individual, individual, which I'm for to some extent. When that's perverted and applied to Christianity, it it distorts the true Christianity. We live in days of low ecclesiology, a low view of the church, and the way that it looks like in the American context is, Christianity is just me and Jesus, Christianity should be you and Jesus. You should believe in Jesus. You should repent of your sins and totally trust in Jesus for yourself. Mama can't, and Daddy can't give it to their kid because if we kid we, could, we would. So true Christianity, true faith in Jesus, must be personal and must be intimate, but it doesn't stop there. And so you, you see it a, a lot of people like, it's just me. There's no corporateness, there's no corporate identity to my Christian faith. That's not biblical. That is not biblical. Jesus just didn't die for the spare finger to go floating around with the spare finger. Jesus dies for the church. He dies for the entire body. And then he places us within the body where he wants us. Some are a mouth, some are a hand. But what this church council shows us, and the sending out of the apostles and the elders by the church, is it teaches us the corporateness of our Christian faith. And here will be the exercise of church discipline and discussing um, doctrine, but it does teach us that Jesus Christ has died for the church and that we, what animal are Christians likened to? What animal? Sheep. Are sheep the lone wolf? Are sheep the lone, are we like Rambo? We just walk around like the, the lone wolf? No, we're sheep. We're not very bright. We're not very strong. And we hang out together. And we, Jesus is going to have many sheep of one flock with one shepherd. I commit to your reading our Confession of Faith, our secondary standard, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, uh, article, uh, paragraph 1 and 2, on the communion of the saints. There are a lot of Christians, professing Christians, that are, are grossly defective in their corporate identity aspect of their faith. We need one another. I need you all, and we need one another. And so, if you, just a pastoral application. If you're ever tempted to take a break from corporate gathering, which is kind of what this is teaching us, don't do it. This is a, this is a trick of the devil. If I can get... You ever watch those when I was a kid? Oh, what was that? The two guys, the old guy and another guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was the, the animal show. They would go to Africa and hunt animals. Perkins was the guy's name. Yeah, right, right, right. So the way that the lion gets the antelope is how does he, he gets the one that's overwalking by himself. And that's the one he gets. So if you're ever tempted to think, you know what, I'm just going to take a break. I'll just hang out at the house with the, the hour of power on the TV. I don't, there's no corporate identity to my Christianity. The devil's going to kick your teeth in. So we, we belong to, to, for one another, and this is an aspect of that. And the other thing that we see in this church council, and I don't really want to do my Presbyterian two-step here, which is my polity, my church government um, uh, part of the sermon, but I'll do it anyways, because it's here. There are a couple of forms of church government. I think one is being taught, obviously, I think it's Presbyterianism. J.C. is my favorite devotional writer, he would tell me I'm wrong, but I love him, even though he's he's Episcopalian and I'm Presbyterian. You see a couple of things. You see connectionalism, and then you see rule by representative elder. And what do I mean by con- connectionalism, which I think is seen both in Episcopalianism and in Presbyterianism, is that the church, as described by the Bible, is not pure, pure congregationalism. So when I say pure, I'm kind of underlying pure. Pure congreg- congregationalism is when a church says this. Well, this church, Bob's church, we'll call it, Bob's Baptist, Bob's Baptist Church, we stand alone. We have no connection to another Baptist church. We're it. Beloved, that's not biblical. And I say pure congregational because let's pick another church, um, the Southern Baptist Church. They're actually not pure congregationalists. They have a Presbyterian-like connectionalism. You see it in their um, the annual convention. They can kick people out. It's, it's, it's almost like Presbyterian. There's a, there's a connection to other Southern Baptist churches. That's biblical. And we see that in this particular passage is there's a problem going on in the Antiochian church in Syria. And so they send a delegation from the Syrian church over to the church in Judea, Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem is going to make, they're going to make doctrinal, uh, 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 they're going to come to a doctrinal conclusion and they're going to send back their ruling, which is binding on the Christians in Syria, Antioch. There's a vital connection. So not only is it the communion of the saints, but one church is vitally connected to other true Christians. And we see that. And then within this discussion going on, another thing that we see is a submission to the brothers. A submission to the brothers. I'll say this by way of application. With false teachers, which are the legalists... And They're arguing with the, the, the apostles. Sometimes ministers get into the ministry, and before they get into the ministry, they think like this. I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I love the Bible. And I'm going to get into the ministry, and everyone's going to love me and respect me and call me reverend. That lasts for five seconds. Then you get kicked in the shins until you die and go home. And you think, well, where's all the respect? Well, where was the respect for Jesus? Where was the respect for Jesus' guys? these legalists come along to the inspired apostles of Jesus and say what? You're wrong on the gospel. People who don't know the gospel tell the inspired apostles, you don't know the gospel. So we have, and then the elders and the apostles, are, they're going to be debating what the gospel is according to the word, and there's a submission to the brothers. This is also a Presbyterian concept which is just how churches govern. So locally, there's a session, and then regionally, there's the the presbytery, and then nationally, there's the general assembly. In the Orthodox Presbyterian church, we put place a high premium on submission to the brothers. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, when this church was under the government of a a church in Tallahassee, we were the mission work of that church. I wanted wine in the Lord's Supper. And there were five five other elders in the other church, and they said, nope, it's going to stay grape juice. And so I went over there, and they said fruit of the vine, and we have, they gave their re- reasons, which I, I thought they were wrong. And they voted five, no, and I voted yes, one. And the, one of the elders said, now what are you going to do, Shortman? And I was late in my 30s, maybe even early 40s. I said, well, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. I've been told no my whole life. Here's what I'm going to do. Aye, aye. Crepe juice. Submission to the brother's. I'm going to say something. People that are prone to false teachers, oh, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. You do everything their way or it's the highway. But that's not the way it works. You see, the elders and the apostles are they're wrangling these things out and they're submitting to one another. So we see this. The other thing within this church council in the defense of the gospel, and I'm going to say this and I don't want to beat this point. There are church leaders this again gets back to the low ecclesiology. Just me and Jesus. No one's going to tell me what to do. Beloved, these folks just swore a vow to God, not to me. I'm just a fancy fiduciary. Everyone that vowed today, you vowed to God. But you also vowed to submit to church leaders. We, because we're Americans, I, because we have the flesh. The flesh, even in true Christians, says "What, what? what. No one is telling me. I will come to this church until you tell me something I don't like. Is that right? No, it's not right. No, if I'm a goofball, tell me I'm a goofball and show me I'm a goofball with the Bible. But if I'm right and you don't like what's right, then get right. Right? Jesus gives to his church, church leaders. You, you, be a Berean. There are apostles and there are elders. Paul says to Titus, set up elders in every church. So this is not Mach, Schnell, Zieg, Heil, goose-stepping around the church. I'm the leader. These guys are what? They're pastors, they're teachers, they're ministers. I'm a fancy foot washer to, called to shepherd God's people. And so these are the leaders and they're coming together. And look at what, what kind of form this, this council takes. Look at the, what, what are we told? Look at verse 2. Paul and Barnabas, they had great dissension and great debate. Verse 15, uh, 15 verse 7, after much debate. The word dissension in Greek here means a party or a side. One side says the gospel is, the good news is Christ pays for all of our sins which we receive by grace, faith alone. And the other side says, nope, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus pays for some, you pay for the rest. It's sides. Sometimes people think, as Christians, wrongly this. We should just get along with every... We should just... We should should never have sides on anything. We should be kind of like a jellyfish. Beloved, if you don't have bones to your theology... Christianity. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Is that rigid? Is there some bones to that? You betcha. Truth divides. So this, this idea of true Christianity just gets along with everybody. That's not true. So until we die and go to heaven, it is impossible for all people to agree on all things, even all religious things. And I'm going to say, because we live in a time of the curse and because we still have the corrupt flesh. And so the debate part of this word is in asking, a searching, and in inquiring for what is the true truth, what's the most biblical truth. Now, I want you to see, they're having a debate here. There are people, well-meaning Christians, that say something like this. You should never debate Christianity with anybody. Never debate it. Never talk, never have a debate on Christ Never have a debate on what the gospel is. Never have a debate on what the Bible is, what the law is, none of it. You should strive to be at peace with all people, and here's the key, at all costs. Because if you don't, someone could get upset. So real Christianity is just be at peace, have unity, no matter what. Beloved, I'm going to say something. I'm from Boston, and I was born a prickly pear. So I have no problem with that. It's my prickly pearness is sin. And so I pray against that. I don't have the problem, that problem. But that's a Neville Chamberlain applied to Christianity. We, we, Christians are lambs or, or, and should be doves. Yes, we should strive to be at peace with all men, if possible. It's not peace at all cost. If we as Christians say to those who pervert the gospel... If we have to have peace with gospel perverters, that's a fool's peace. That's a damnable peace. That is a God-offending, Christ-offending peace. We are not to have peace with all people at all costs. Not. If you don't get anything else, we are not to have peace with people that distort the gospel. I'm not talking about being ugly. I'm not talking about being mean. But if we have to give in to the gospel for those who abuse the gospel and send people to hell and we're mute about it, what does the Bible say about a minister that's mute on the gospel? He's a a mute watchdog. So if you say, well, I'm not a minister. Well, then you're not a minister, but I'll speak to the ministers and the elders. The Bible says clearly one of the duties, an underline the word duty, and I know we live in a day where everything should be, I feel you know, it, it fulfilled and duty is a bad thing. No, duty is a good thing. One of the duties, obligatory duties, of an elder or a minister is they must present the truth of the gospel and they must refute those who distort the gospel. Must. So if, if you say, well, I'm Fred the, the sheetrock hanger, I still think you should stand up for Christ. But if you're Fred the, the gospel minister and you won't stand up for the truth of the gospel, <laughs> shame on you. And I'll just say to the people... Fred, the sheetrock guy. If someone was speaking badly about your wife, let's just say, in, the, in your presence, and you would go like this. And they're, and they're ripping your wife to shreds in your presence. And you say nothing. What does your wife think about you? You're a coward. You don't love her. Sometimes people say, well, I'm so loving, I won't stand up. No, you don't love Christ enough. The more we love Christ, we would stand up. You wouldn't let people run your mom down. Why would you let someone run the gospel down? And it leads people to hell. And so there is this debate going on, which side is right. And I want to tell you something. Notice what the debate consists of. Words. Words. One side says, "This this is what we think the Bible teaches, it's Christ alone pays for our sins. And the other side says, no, we think the Bible teaches something else. It's just words. Now, I, of course, the words of, of Christ alone are the true words, but it's not non-words. And what am I getting at? There have been times in the, ebook, in the Christian epoch, uh, the New Testament era, where Christians have said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to a heathen land, uh, unbelieving land, and we're going to say to the people, would you like to believe in Jesus? And they say, no. And then they take out a sword and say, would you like to believe in Jesus? And they say, guess what? I think we would. It's not biblical, beloved. It's not right. That's Islam. Convert or I kill you with a sword. Christians don't force people to convert. This is what my Hindu father-in-law doesn't understand. He asked me, do they pay you more money, John, if you convert a person? I can't, I can't convert anyone. You can say, say Jesus, or I cut your head off. You, you're not converting them. God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, can converse with words through the ministry of the Word. The Christian church errs. And I know there are times, and if you're keen to study these things, chapter 23 of our confession, look at the original version versus the American version. The rightness or the wrongness of the church asking the state to make laws to prevent the corruption of the Christian faith. That's a big, long discussion. The church does not wield the sword. I will go to my grave believing that. I meet Christians every once in a while. When are we going to get the guns and we're going to take over and we're going to do this? You are whistling, Dixie! Jesus said, when they persecute you, do what? Load up your guns? Run! Run for the hills! The gospel of Jesus is not advanced with a sword. It's advanced with the word of God. So we debate. And I want you to see what the debate here in this church is about, this church synod. What are they debating? I think it says whether to vote for Trump or Ron DeSantis. I'm going to tell, tell you, I've been here 22 years in January. Every four years, I want to throw up. Because Christians, we get suckered in. Are we conservative? Are we all these things? Yada, yada, yada. We're all of those things. I am. If you want to come to my house over coffee, I'll tell you who I vote for. Look at what they're handling. This is where the Christian church errs. This is where ministers err. They're not talking economic theory. They're not talking political theory. They're not even talking filial, family theory. What are they talking about? The doctrine of Christ, the, the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the law, the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of man, heaven, hell. That's what they're talking about. And what are they doing about the other things? Am I saying the politics are, are meaningless or uh, economics are, are meaningless? No. But they belong to other people. The minister is chained to the word of God. He's chained to the gospel. Remember the guy goes to Jesus? Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. And What does Jesus say? you, you know what I'm about? Who made me judge over you, man? I'm here to tell people how to go to heaven, to purchase heaven. The Bible says regarding ministers, they're not to be entangled in everyday affairs. They're to be busy about this. The Christian pulpit, and this is not a a private conversation. So if you come to the house and you want to say, who do you vote for, how do you raise your kids, come on down. That's private conversation. This isn't a private conversation. This is a church court on what the gospel is. What does the Bible teach? Beloved, the church gets off course. I could quote our confession on that. I, perhaps I will quote, quote, quote our confession. I know every once in a while people will tell me, Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. It belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith. And it goes on to say this. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and not to intermeddle with civil affairs. I've lost people in this church. They tell me, Pastor, you don't love America. What are you talking about? My job is not to tell you about who to vote for. My calling is to point you to Christ who pays for your sins. Beloved, don't ever put any confidence in your, your, your flesh. Don't ever put any confidence in your flesh. Only put confidence in Christ. Stay on your knees. Get in the Bible. I, I, want, I want to leave you with these words. These are gospel words. Our brother George prayed that we would be encouraged. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ paying for our sins is encouraging. The gospel which is no gospel of telling people be really, 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 really good and maybe you'll go to heaven is not a gospel. But Listen to this. I want to close with these words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood be from thy riven side which flowed Of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. The next part of this hymn, I'm going to read. There's a very famous man. He's in England, and he writes a book, and he says, "This is this is a piece of legal fiction." He thinks it's nonsense when Christians say we bring nothing but our sin. He thinks it's ridiculous. He thinks the notion of imputed righteousness of Christ to us is nonsense. It's fiction. He doesn't know the gospel. Augustus Toplady knew the gospel. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the gospel. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.